Last week we finished Romans 4. We're going to start Romans 5. I want to back up into Romans 4 for just a second. You remember Romans 4 was talking about Abraham, who was justified by faith. And the place where I want to be is in Romans 4.17. And it says there, As it is written, I have made you the father of nations in the presence of God whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. We talked last time about the symbolic correlation between Abraham and Sarah who were reproductively dead and were raised from the dead so that they could reproduce and have Isaac. And then what that correlates to is Yeshua's resurrection from the dead so that we can have eternal life. So we talked about that last time and and I'm not going to necessarily go into that. The thing I do want to talk about for just a second We sort of glided over it last time, but it's important. It's that part that who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That takes you back to Genesis 1, really, because what you have in Genesis 1 is nothing exists. And you have the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And God calls things that do not exist into existence by his very voice. Now, the idea of calling things into existence, especially out of the water, is going to be the subject when we get into chapter 5, because we're going to talk about baptism. So I wanted to go back there and just touch base on that to remind everybody so that when we're in chapter 5 and talking about baptism, you've got a frame of reference, if you will. So, now down to chapter 5. It starts with therefore, and of course, therefore means that there's something that went before, and the therefore there was the unwavering faith and trust of Abraham and God. So, the fact that he had unwavering trust and faith, even though he and Sarah had to be symbolically raised from the dead, he believed that, never wavered, and that's the thing that was counted to him as righteousness. Once he completely trusted God, then God was able to look upon him and say, essentially, you are one of mine. And so the sins and so forth that all of us commit, I can erase those and regard you as righteous. So therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Yeshua Messiah. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith to his grace, in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. One of the things that we're going to do later is, in fact, far more extensively explored in Corinthians is the idea that in order to become what God ultimately wants us to be, the body that we have now is going to have to be planted in the grave, and then it will be raised up incorruptible. So just as Yeshua had to go through death in order to be raised up incorruptible, so will we. Verse 3, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, Endurance produces character, 
And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, I was listening to Ron Dark today because he's going through Romans too. And his attitude toward the law, towards Romans and all that kind of stuff, everything he says I agree with. I came to the same conclusion a long time ago and we just agree. He says things sometimes differently than I would say them. And he did that in this case. And so I want to take a minute and mention something that he said. One of the things that I have said ever since I've been here is your destination is not heaven. You're not designed to live in heaven. You are designed to have a body. You are designed to be on earth, whether it's a new heaven and a new earth or this earth. You were designed to be a connector, if you will, between the physical world and God. You're the gardener. When you die and are raised from the dead, what's going to happen is you are going to get a body again. It's going to be an upgraded body. As Paul says, sown in corruption, raised in incorruption, and you know all that kind of stuff. You're going to be changed. You're going to be different. But you're still going to have a body. And the question that Ron Dart asked as soon as he asked it, it was obvious to me what he was talking about, is if your eternity is going to be sitting around, staring at the golden throne, watching the angels spin around God and cast their crowns down, and you're just sitting up there in the bleachers going, Hallelujah! Why are you going through all of this character building now? Part of character building is suffering. You don't build character when things are really going well. You build character when things are difficult. And God has put you in this world, which is inherently a very difficult place. And he's put you here in order to build your character. We're really getting built up right now. But the point I'm making is there isn't any point in you getting character built up if your whole eternity is going to be sitting in the bleachers looking at God. There's going to be something that you are fit for or being fitted for that your character is going to be an important component of. You all know, of course, that my background is in the Army. And one of the things about the Army is they intentionally put soldiers through very difficult and trying times. You're hungry, you're cold, you're tired, you're grumpy and and all sorts of stuff and the purpose of it is so that when you actually get into the fight they had a saying about the Roman army the Roman army's training was so good that their wars were simply like bloody training exercises they had done such a good job of preparing their soldiers that when they actually got into combat it was just sort of like another exercise except they got live swords so Ron Dart's point here is there isn't any point in putting you through all of this suffering if the only thing that's going to happen to you is you're going to sit in the bleachers. The reason for that kind of character building and that kind of training is because it's going to be necessary in the resurrection. So one of the things that Paul says is when you suffer, count it all joy. Not that you're supposed to enjoy the suffering, but you're supposed to enjoy the fact that God has got his hand on you 
and he is training you and he is developing your patience and your character and your endurance because he needs you for something in the future. And so what Paul is saying is when that stuff happens to you, rejoice because that tells you that God has got future plans for you. What your character is going to be like and what use you will be to God after the resurrection is something that you can't see now. And what Paul is saying is just trust God. He's got something for you to do. There's a reason for all of this. Maintain your relationship with God and rejoice knowing that he has his hand on you and he's putting you through this for a purpose, not just to be mean. That was worth listening to Ron Dart today. Everything he said, as soon as he said it that way, was just click, okay, that's obvious. It's a variation of what I've been teaching for years, but he said it better than I had. You're headed for an upgrade, but not just a physical upgrade. The character that you're building now is important to what you will be in the resurrection. Onward. So I'm in verse 6 now. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Notice righteous and good are two different words. You can tell they're spelled differently. Righteous is well-behaved. Good is uh, a function of character, a function of worth, if you will. Certainly a good person would also be well-behaved. But simply being well-behaved is not what makes you good. Verse 8, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Ding, 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 ding. Wrath of God. Now one of the things that we've been saying, and Ron Dart has also been saying, because we're sort of going along parallel here, is the law, the Torah, God's teaching and instruction, is not particularly intended to be a set of statutes a la the law down in the courthouse. And the Western way of thinking of law is a law has with it someone to enforce it. To use my example, if you're driving down the street and you're on a stop sign, you can expect to have a policeman pull you over and write a ticket. There is somebody to enforce the law. In God's economy, running a stop sign makes you subject to either getting in an accident and hurting yourself or someone else. So in God's case, don't run a stop sign is self-enforcing. There isn't an angel up there that's watching you and, oh, he ran a stop sign. We're going to put a black mark in the book for him. That's not what's going on. Not running a stop sign is skillful living. And so what the Torah does is tells you how to live well, how to live at peace with your fellow man, how to get through this life with as few bumps and nicks as are possible. But there isn't somebody up there watching you and saying, ooh, ran another stop sign. That's three stop signs this month. You know, the fourth stop sign we're going to take is wheels. That doesn't exist. That's not the purpose of the Torah. So anyway, the wrath of God. 
the wrath of God is different than you ran a stop sign. And the poster child for that is the pre-flood world, where God looked at the state of humanity, and he says, those folks stink right up to here. I can't stand it anymore. I'm going to wipe them out and start over. That's the wrath of God. And it didn't happen to them because they ran stop signs. It happened to them because they descended into violence, injustice, murder, oppression, all those kinds of things. In other words, they were wicked, as opposed to garden variety sinners that occasionally run a stop sign. At some point, the violations of Torah become so egregious that they change in character from just running stop signs to being wicked. And God is the judge of when that point arises. And God has periodically looked at Israel and said, you guys stink. I can't stand you anymore. And you're being called by my name. So you're sullying my name among the nations. So what we're going to do is we're going to send you all into exile. And it's going to be grim and rough. But I ain't going to put up with that anymore. That's the wrath of God. A comment from Tom was, if the fine for running a stop sign is 100 bucks, and you run a stop sign 10 times in a month, that would theoretically be 1000 bucks. God isn't up there saying, okay, you got caught once, that's 100 you owe me 900 because they didn't catch you nine times. That's not what's going on. What Tom is saying, and I agree, what you're doing is you are casting your character. And if you routinely ignore parts of God's teaching and instruction, it will leave a mark on your character. There's no question about that. But even an accumulation of stop sign running doesn't add up to wicked deserving the wrath of God. And by the way, where that limit is, I do not know. And I'm not looking to find out, okay? I'm not out there seeing how far I can go before the wrath of God descends on I do not want to do that. And the wrath of God, as I understand it, will happen nationally and societally. It's not necessarily, oh, George down there is really wicked, zot. It's that society has become corrupt and I can't take it anymore and we're going to do a Sodom and Gomorrah. If you think about abortion doctors that have done hundreds and hundreds of abortions, at some point you could probably call that wicked, and I wouldn't disagree at all. But the other part of that is cumulatively over a nation God starts to look at it and say, these people, I can't stand the smell anymore. And that's when you have the wrath of God come down. The whole society, if you will, you know, the judicial system, the electoral system, all that kind of stuff. Again, those are all things we can't know except in general principles. There's such a thing as a national character. And our national character is not looking nearly as shiny as it was 100 years ago. Verse 10. Romans 5.10, for if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Yeshua Messiah, through whom we have received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. 
For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there was no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who is to come. All right, that's a mouthful. Remember in Genesis 2 and 3, God said, you can eat of any tree except that one, and I am telling you on the day that you eat of that one, you shall become mortal. And what Paul is saying here is mortality is now a human characteristic, even though none of us have committed the same sin that Adam did. Once humanity became mortal, being well-behaved does not make you immortal. It simply makes you well-behaved. You are still mortal. No matter how well you follow God's teaching and instruction, you are a mortal being because your father was a mortal being all the way back to Adam. Even though you've never deliberately disobeyed God, you are still mortal. As a Catholic, they believe in original sin. And are babies born in innocence or are they born in sin? I'm suggesting that's not the way to look at it. Babies are born mortal because their parents are mortal. It has nothing to do with how well they are behaved. Now, having said that, the human heart is wicked. We have free will and we have a certain degree of obstinacy. We have a certain degree of rebelliousness, so everybody, as he goes through life, does in fact commit his own sins. But that's not what's killing him. What's killing him is his mortality. Nobody will be executed for the sins of his parents, because if you were executed for the sins of your parents, you would never have the opportunity to develop the character that God wants you to develop on your own. But you are still mortal. And being well-behaved, which is to say doing your very level best to do all of the points of the law as you understand them, does not change the fact that you're mortal. Verse 15, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Yeshua Messiah, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Yeshua Messiah. Let's stop there for just a minute. What he's saying is, since the first man brought mortality into the world by his sin, what the last Adam, if you will, Yeshua does, is he brings the ability to gain immortality into the world. And one of the things that he'll say here, leaving aside for a minute the second coming, you know, the second coming is a special case where you know, we'll not all sleep and we'll all be changed kind of thing. Just normal times. So even though you are in right relationship with God and Yeshua is your Savior 
and your sins are forgiven, you are still going to pass through death. And then you're going to go into the grave and you're going to come up in a resurrection body. So it is not the case that Yeshua has backed out mortality in this world. He has backed out mortality for humanity in the world to come. Leaving aside the second coming, which is a special case and only happens once, the normal course of human life is you are born, you will go through your life, and at some point you will experience physical death. And then you'll be planted in the grave like a seed, and that seed will sprout and grow into a resurrection body. And at that point, you will be who and what it is that God ultimately wants you to be, which is, among other things, immortal. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Ding, 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 ding. The point is, Messiah's sacrifice covers the sins of everybody. It says it here, it says it in Acts. It isn't just the sins of the elect that are covered. Everybody's sins are covered. And everybody is going to be raised from the dead. Now, what happens upon that resurrection, it also says in in Revelation that some are going to be raised to shame. And how that all sorts out is not completely clear to me. But the point is, all of humanity now has had its sins covered. And in the resurrection, as it says, some of them are going to be raised to shame. In other words, when they are raised from the dead, they are not going to be happy campers. So understand what it's saying here. Verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Yeshua Messiah our Lord. We've said this over and over and over again, but it's worth repeating. The purpose of the Torah, teaching and instruction, is to let us know how to live well and how to live in ways that are not destructive to ourselves and are not destructive to our relationship with God. One of the things Paul has said is, before that instruction was given, bad behavior was there, but people didn't necessarily know any better. Now you know better, which is to say, now your responsibility increases because you know better. Chapter 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Messiah Yeshua were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Messiah was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. All right, full stop. This is going to take a minute. What we're talking about is a mikvah. And in Judaism, a mikvah is a immersion which moves you from the realm of death into the realm of life. 
poster child example for that is once a month a healthy woman has the ability to pass on life go out from her. And she has this marker of mortality, is the way I would say it. By the way, the same rule applies to men. It just doesn't last as long. But there's no difference, actually, between men and women. So what happens is, for a time, she enters the realm of death. And the example I would use, since everybody is now paying attention to hospitals, if you are a hospital medical worker, a nurse or a doctor or somebody, and you walk in off the street, you cannot walk into a surgical suite. You cannot walk into an intensive care unit because you're carrying death with you. So in order for you to go into a sterile place in a hospital, you have to be cleaned and perhaps put on protective gear, but certainly washing hands so that you don't carry death into that place. There's nothing that says you're sinful there. This is not a matter of sinfulness. So a woman, for example, in her menses is not sinful. I mean, other than we're all sinful, but it had nothing to do with that. It is that she, for a period of time, has entered the realm of death. Same thing with a man or an undertaker. So, for example, let's say somebody in your family dies and you have to care for the body. That is commanded. But during the time that you're caring for the body, you have entered the realm of death. And there are things that you then can't do until you come back into the realm of life. The way you come from the realm of death into the realm of life is you pass through waters just like Genesis 1. You go down into the water and you come up out of the water reborn. And if you are in an Orthodox synagogue, when you take a mikvah for whatever reason, as you come up out of the water, somebody will say, reborn or born again. This is well-known Judaism 101. So what Paul is saying here about baptism is in order to have life with Yeshua, we also have to come out of the realm of death into the realm of life. And we do that by going down into the water, which is symbolic of death, and we come up out of the water, which is symbolic of creation, just as the world came out of the water after the flood, etc. So the whole purpose of this riff on baptism here, as I say, any Jew would understand exactly what's being said here, which is to say you've got to move from one realm to the other. And as we're sinners and we are enemies of God and so forth, when we decide that we want to be on Yeshua's side, we have to die and be born again. The comment was Nicodemus didn't get it. And if you read that, what does Yeshua say? Yeshua slaps him around a little bit and says, huh? If you're a teacher, you should understand this. So the fact that Nicodemus didn't get it is a problem with Nicodemus, not a problem with the understanding. Verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And the idea is as you go down into the water, you are symbolically going down into the realm of death, and then you are coming back up and you are being raised from the dead into newness of life. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing 
so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Messiah, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Messiah Yeshua. Paul says it lots of ways. One example he uses is if a woman's husband dies, she is no longer bound by the laws of marriage to her husband. She's now free to remarry. Death severs the claim that the law has on you. And the law here I'm using in the case of statutes, not teaching. So if she goes and fools around with some other guy and her husband is still alive, she's an adulteress. If, on the other hand, her husband has passed away and she goes and has a relationship with a guy, she is not an adulteress because death has severed that relation. The example Ron Dart used was kind of cute. If you were a cat burglar and you're really good, you didn't ever wear gloves, and all the police departments in the world had your fingerprints on file, but they'd never been able to catch you. And one day you had an automobile accident, and somebody was killed, and they thought it was you, so they quit looking for you. If at that point you never robbed another place again, you'd be free because everybody thinks you're dead. If, however, you rob someplace and leave your fingerprints, the police are then going to say, wait a minute, we've seen those fingerprints before. Maybe we had the wrong body. So it was an interesting analogy. So I'm all the way down to verse 12. Is that correct? Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of foreign righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Now that phrase gets misinterpreted a lot by the Sunday church. And what it's saying is going back to Abraham. Abraham believed God, it was accounted to him for righteousness. That does not mean that Abraham thereafter ceased to do anything wrong. So for example, I will suggest that his treatment of Hagar and Ishmael after Isaac was born was pretty scummy. Yet, God regarded him as a friend because he was in relationship to God and the fact that he did something pretty scummy, I thought, with Hagar and Ishmael didn't diminish his standing with God. He was still counted as righteous. So what Paul is saying here is when you come up out of the waters of baptism and you are in right relationship with God through the sacrifice of Messiah Yeshua, you still have the capacity to sin. But it would really be counterproductive and foolish for you to do so. You've changed sides. And yeah, you're going to still sin, but you shouldn't take the fact that you were in right relationship with God as permission to misbehave. That's what he's saying. 
What you now want to do is you want to adjust your behavior so that you don't bring disgrace upon God. The whole point here is because you have been baptized and you, because you have been forgiven of your sins and because you have been counted righteous by the grace of God, do not use that as an occasion to then go out and do whatever the heck you want. Your behavior really needs to change based on who you now work for. And whereas before you were a slave to what Paul calls sin, I will call the flesh. In other words, you were doing whatever the flesh happened to want to do at the moment. Now you're under new management. So you really need to have consideration of your behavior in light of who you work for. So Romans 6.15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Standard of teaching, I will suggest that that's code speak for Torah. That's what Torah means, teaching and instruction. Verse 18, and having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. In other words, you've changed masters. Your flesh is now no longer your master. God and Yeshua are your masters. 19, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Sanctification. That's not salvation. You can tell they're spelled differently. Salvation is joining God's team and making him what he actually is, your Lord. In other words, I am joining your kingdom, God. You are now my Lord. I am your man. Sanctification is the process of character building that we led off the hour talking about. And what happens there is as God works on you, your character changes and you become more Christ-like. The standard, if you will, is Yeshua himself. And what God is going to do to people who come over to his side, he says, okay, I got work to do on you. You got a whole bunch of stuff that needs to be changed and pruned and it's not going to be pleasant but I'm going to take it to the end and I'm going to make you into something that is Christ-like. That's what sanctification is. Verse 20. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? You were able to do your own sweet thing, but look at the results of that in your life because you're now ashamed of some of that stuff you did and the fruit that comes from it. The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin of death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Messiah Yeshua our Lord. So the idea here is you are now on a journey that will last until either Yeshua returns or until your body is planted in the grave. 
And the entire purpose of that is your sanctification and to turn you into something that looks like Christ. Come